Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. All right, so today we are going to be talking about the non-arthritic hip joint clinical practice guideline. But before we jump into that, there were a few things that we just wanted to cover, kind of some housekeeping items. So this is the first episode we're really recording since we released the episodes that we'd already done um, and kind of reached out to people through the MedBridge Facebook group to let them know that we were doing this. So uh, we wanted to just thank everybody. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Um, We appreciate you guys listening. We really wanted to do this, like we said in the first episode, to help. It was something we didn't have when we were studying. Um, So we hope this is helpful for you guys to be able to kind of study on the go um, and just to help supplement what you're doing. So if you are in other Facebook groups or if you're in a study group, please share this with... um, friends or anyone you know that's going to be taking the OCS just to kind of spread this around a little bit more. Um, Also, please send us any questions that you have or any requests for topics. I know in the Facebook group, we did have someone that requested going over some of the current concepts. So we did want to chat about that a little bit. We definitely understand that there are things um, in the current concepts that are discussed um, that aren't necessarily covered in the CPGs. And so we will look into, once we get through all the CPGs, um, we'll look into doing some episodes where we're covering some other topics that are covered in current concepts that are not covered in the CPG. So Amanda, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I mean, I think, you know, we talked about, we'll, we'll go through the current concepts and make sure it's not repetitive information. We'll pick other topics, you know, for example, shoulder, go over some rotator cuff management, stuff of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the the CPG for the shoulder, really the only one is that adhesive capsulitis. And there's obviously other topics that you need to know besides adhesive capsulitis and other diagnoses. Um, So we're not going to talk about adhesive capsulitis again, but we will cover some other things. So just know that, you know, it doesn't necessarily replace listening to the CPG episodes, but um, just more supplements. So we'll definitely look at that. Um, We wanted to let you guys know our goal is really to try and do a weekly release. Um, This is something that we're, you know, doing on the side. It's kind of a little side project for us. So there may be some weeks where we miss, especially as the holidays get closer. But our goal is really to do a release every single Monday if we can. Um, So if there's going to be an episode for that week, you'll see it pop up on Mondays. So you can contact us, like we've said in previous episodes, by email. So um, certified OCS podcast at gmail.com is the email address you can send questions to. You can also, um, I'm on Facebook. I was in the, the MedBridge Facebook group. So feel free to add me on there. You can ask me questions that way. I actually am on Instagram quite a bit more. I do a lot of stuff for my business on Instagram. So if you want to find me on there, my handle is at a Hutchison DPT. So it's a H U T C H I S O N DPT. Um, so add me on there, send me questions, uh, send me information that you'd like us to talk about. And I'd be happy to, uh, to address that. And then Amanda, what about you? Um, I, you know, Facebook, absolutely fine. I'm checked that periodically. I too posted in the Medbridge Facebook, so you can certainly add me, send me questions on there. Um, and I'm pretty active over the email, probably more so than Instagram. Um, I always have that up during my day. So I get back to that pretty quick. Well, perfect. So, so just those little items, um, like we said, just send us any questions you have, but we just want to make sure we cover that since we have some people who are listening and we want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So without further ado, we'll get into talking about the non-arthritic hip joint clinical practice guideline. So this guideline I think is a little different in that, um, You know, and Amanda and I sort of chatted about this ahead of time because it's such an interesting CPG. There's really not a ton of great research. Um, A lot of the information is a little, I don't know. So they, they talk about different diagnoses and they all sort of point at one another. So a lot of times if you have one of these things, you're probably going to present with the other. We're not really sure what came first. Um, And so you'll sort of see that as a theme throughout, it gets a little bit repetitive. So just understand that going into it, that these 
diagnoses are all very closely related and can all sort of occur together. Um, and so we'll kind of, you'll, you'll see a lot of that. Um, so just so you know, to be aware um, as we're moving through this CPG. So um, the other thing that they really don't cover in this are like pediatric hip diagnoses. There's a couple that are mentioned, but I would like to note that those are important to know and you should definitely make sure that you read up on them in your current concepts or through MedBridge or evidence in motion or whatever it is. So they really are not discussed in this CPG, but you should know them. So the, um, in the introduction to this, they talk about how non-arthritic hip joint pain refers to a collection of hip pain conditions, which are proposed to involve intra-articular structures of the hip. So these diagnoses include femoroacetabular impingement, structural instability, labral tears, chondral lesions, and ligamentum teres tears. So um, there's been a lot of advancement in imaging and surgical techniques, which has improved identification of the potential contributors to hip joint pain. However, evidence to definitively associate pathology noted on imaging with that hip joint pain and related activity limitations has not been established. So because of that, diagnoses are made based on a combination of imaging and clinical findings. Um, and there really isn't a consensus on diagnostic criteria to rule in or, or rule out a specific condition. Um, so despite limitations, surgical intervention to address non-arthritic hip joint pain has grown exponentially. Although evidence to suggest that surgical intervention is superior to non-surgical management is not available. So given these limitations, clinicians must be disciplined in their evaluation to verify the presence of a relevant relation between the patient's reported activity limitation and his or her examination findings. So the scope of these guidelines is um, specific to non-arthritic hip joint conditions. So they really just talk specifically about that. But if you're obviously, and I'm sure we all do this, but if you're evaluating someone for some sort of hip pain, you're also going to pull examination and intervention procedures for pelvis and the, the hip region that might be appropriate. Um, and they also me make mention of like research on pain science um, and how that could really be relevant in this population, but they're not going to talk about it in the CPG. So, um, all right, so pathoanatomical features. So Understand that there's a complex relationship between the labrum, the bony architecture of the acetabulum and femur, as well as approximate soft tissues, such as ligaments and muscles. Um, and it's important for diagnosis and treatment of individuals with mechanical hip pain. So review the details. They really dive into like anatomy review of the hip. I'm not going to read all that to you guys on here, but um, they do give a nice outline of just kind of reminding you, you know, it, yes, it's a ball and socket joint, but there can be a lot of variability in the alignment of hips from person to person, um, which plays a lot into these different diagnoses and putting people at higher risk for them. So just kind of understand what the quote unquote, like normal is for, you know, each of these structures of the hip. So the control of hip during movement involves complex interactions between the nervous, muscular, and skeletal systems. And I just kind of found this interesting. They note there's 27 muscles that cross the hip joint and act as primary movers and dynamic stabilizers of the hip and lower extremities. So that is a lot of muscles covering, you know, one joint here. So um, as I mentioned in the beginning in my little intro that it should be noted that non-arthritic hip joint impairments are not necessarily mutually exclusive and at times may be related to each other. Um, and recently, there's been an increased focus um, placed on identifying acetabular labral tears as one cause of hip pain and on understanding the underlying mechanism in the development of labral tears. So the underlying mechanisms may be related to variations in joint anatomy combined with specific activities or of traumatic onset. So two anatomical variants have been described, which is the moroacetabular impingement and structural instability. So those are the first two things that we're going to talk about. So femoral acetabular impingement is abnormal contact between the femoral head, neck, and the acetabular margin, which is caused by structural variations of the proximal femur or the acetabulum. And this has been associated with labral and chondral damage. So osseous abnormalities are proposed to contribute to labral tears due to impingement in hip flexion and internal rotation. 
the presence of a slipped capital femoral epiphysis can also cause impingement. With repetitive motions into impingement, it may lead to injury to the acetabular labrum and cartilage damage. And so the end stage of this process may lead to the development of secondary hip osteo joint osteoarthritis. So that's another thing that you'll see is a lot of these diagnoses. Um, so like, like I just mentioned, the um, you know, femoral acetabular impingement can lead to labral tears or chondral damage. Um, and then a lot of these things can also lead to hip OA later, which will be the next CPG that we go over. Um, so femoral acetabular impingement has been classified into three categories based on specific osseous abnormalities present. So they talk about cam impingement, pincer impingement, and then there's also a combination of cam and pincer impingement, which they believe is likely the most common category. Um, so cam impingement is when there's, um, they use the term aspherosity of the femoral head. So the femoral head is not as much of a you know, normal sphere as it should be. And it's often related to a slipped capital femoral epiphysis or other epiphyseal injury or protrusion of the head neck junction occurring at the proximal femur. So that we're really looking at the femur when we're looking at a cam impingement, whereas a pincer impingement is the result of acetabular abnormalities. Um, so such as a general protrusion, um, localized anterior superior acetabular overcoverage of the femur, which would be acetabular retroversion. So, um, you know, again, cam, we're looking at the femoral head, pincer, we're looking more at the acetabulum, um, but a combination of both is probably the most likely cause of FAI. So they also talk about how um, potential risk factors for this are genetics and also gender. So cam deformities are higher in men and pincer deformities are higher in women. So that's something that they note. Do you, Amanda, have anything to add about FAI? Um, not necessarily. I, I agree with Alexis. If you're looking at, you know, what they say about it being a combined thing, if you're looking at any imaging or you're getting a report from a doctor, you know, and you're seeing them for therapy, I don't know that I'd hang up on which one it is unless they specifically say, just know that it's probably going to be a combination. Any imaging studies I've seen lately really focus on both. Sure. Yep. Um, so the next diagnoses they talk about are, um, structural instability. So that's, you know, excessive hip motion that causes pain. Um, and that can be with or without the symptom of unsteadiness in the hips. So these are your people that might come in and say, um, you know, that they feel like their hip is unstable or they feel like their leg's going to give out or that sort of thing. Or it could just be that they're having, they're able to get into those like extreme ranges of motion, but they have pain there. So, um, Structural instability can be traumatic, atraumatic, or secondary to bone, bony or soft tissue abnormality. Um, factors related to structural instability include a shallow acetabulum and an excessive femoral antiversion. So excessive acetabular antiversion or retroversion, inferior acetabulum insufficiency, and a neck shaft angle greater than 140 degrees may also be components of structural instability. These conditions, particular when particularly when combined with repetitive forceful activities have been associated with the development of labral tears. So again, kind of connected to different diagnoses here. Um, so again, potential risk factors for structural instability could be genetics, also ligamentous laxity. So these are your folks that have like Ehlers-Danlos, Down syndrome, Marfan syndrome. They're going to present with ligamentous laxity in other areas as well, but this can be seen in the hip. So anything to add on structural instability? No. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Um, so they talk about a few other pathoanatomical features. So femoral antiversion and retroversion. Um, so excessive antiversion of the femur is characterized by increased internal rotation range of motion and limited external rotation range of motion. Whereas excessive retroversion of the femur is the opposite of that. So you're going to see excessive external rotation and limited internal rotation. And both of those, again, can lead to increased risk for labral injury, as well as development of osteoarthritis. The next thing they talk about are acetabular labral tears. So um, this has recently been identified as a potential source of hip pain and another possible precursor to hip osteoarthritis. Um, so true estimates of the prevalence of labral tears are not currently available. 
Um, but in patients with mechanical hip pain, it's been related, it's been reported to be as high as 90. Um, there was another study that they talked about um, with examining individuals with hip and groin pain, and that found the prevalence of labor, labral tears to be 22% to 55%. So there's a little variability there, um, but you know, it is something that I think they're realizing is more prevalent than maybe previously thought. So labral tears can occur due to acute trauma or of insidious onset. Um, so traumatic mechanisms of labral tears generally involve rapid twisting, pivoting, or falling motions. Um, so a common mechanism in the athletic population includes a forceful rotation of the hip in a hyperextended position. Other mechanisms consist of a combination of anatomical variations with repetitive forces. Um, so again, there was a study that they found that up to 74% of labral tears were not associated with a specific event. Um, so they're found to be more common in individuals who subject the hip joint to repetitive stress. stress. Uh, so one study found acetabular labral tears to be the cause of symptoms in 20% of athletes presenting with groin pain. So, you know, when we're talking about athletes, generally we're talking about some sort of repetitive motion. So they're seeing that it, it is quite prevalent um, that there can be these labral tears in athletes that are having groin pain. They also say that increased age could be associated with the prevalence of labral tears um, and that labral tears are often, their diagnosis are delayed or misdiagnosed. Um, so there's one other study where they talked about classifying, like a system of classifying acetabular labral tears. So there's four different types of tears that they talk about. So the radial flap, which is the most common, and that's the free margin of the labrum being disrupted. Radial fibrillated, which is fraying of the free margin of the labrum. Abnormally mobile or par partially detached, which is just where it's partially detached from the acetabular surface. And then longitudinal peripheral tears, which would be the least common. And those are tears along the acetabular labral junction. So that's just kind of a general um, overview of labral tears. Do you have anything to add? Is this something that you see a lot of, Amanda? I mean, I see a fair amount of labral tears, but in terms of that specifically, no, I think yeah. if you have more questions about that, you can certainly look it up. Yeah. Or, you know, they go into it a little bit more in here. Um, right. But no, I don't think that's, I think what you well, said was perfect for that. Yeah. And like they say, you know, they're often misdiagnosed or delayed or like you're really treating the patient for something else and they have a labral tear, you know, on top of that. So um, I always kind of equate like labral tears in the hip, similar to like managing rotator cuff pathology. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to get them at any stage along the way, whether they know they have it, they don't know they have it. They haven't even seen an orthopedic, you know, their primary yeah. care for them because they finally mentioned it at a, a routine physical. They just have generalized hip pain. Maybe they have a labrum tear. Maybe they don't. It's one of those. It doesn't really matter. You're going to treat them for how they're presenting. Exactly. Exactly. Surgery is so. never usually the first go-to with these folks, especially mm -hmm. your run-of-the-mill population, maybe professional athletes. But, um, right. you know, even if you have a confirmed diagnosis of a labral tear, you know, yeah. I don't know yeah. that it really matters. For sure. Yep. Um, okay. So the next one they talk about is a ruptured ligamentum teres. So. Um, the ligamentum teres originates from the edge of the edges of the acetabular notch and transverse acetabular ligament and attaches to the fovea capitis of the femoral head. Uh, so recent findings suggest that it, this structure may play a role in stabilization, resisting hip joint subluxation forces. Uh, patients with a tear of the ligamentum teres may develop hip micro instability. This condition of compromised stability when combined with recreational and sports activities may result in damage to the labrum and cartilage. So again, we're talking about this could lead to a labrum tear or um, damage to the cartilage if you have this little micro instability from a tear in the ligamentum teres. Um, so this is actually considered generally rare. Uh, the correlation between injuries to the ligamentum teres and clinical presentation is not well understood. So they don't talk a ton about this. They sort of mention it as like, hey, this happens sometimes. It might play a role, but we don't know a ton about it. And they're pretty rare. So uh, the next thing they talk about are chondral lesions. So little's known about the prevalence of isolated chondral lesions. Um, however, there was one study that showed that 73% of patients with fraying or tearing of the labrum also had chondral damage, which, you know, again, as I've sort of mentioned through a lot of these 
other diagnoses, they talk about how it could lead to labrum tears and chondral damage, labral tears and chondral damage. So, um, you know, they're definitely closely related. So anterior superior cartilage lesions have been associated with um, dysplasia, anterior joint laxity, and the presence of FAI. The combination of labral tears pre present greater than five years and full thickness chondral lesions in those with higher alpha angles correlates with a greater magnitude of decreased hip range of motion, chondral damage, labral injury, and progression of osteoarthritis. Um, so chondral lesions have been reported in younger, more active individuals as a source of hip pain and a traumatic injury pattern involving acute overloading through impact sustained by a blow to the greater trochanteric region has been described. Um, so that's really all they know on the chondral lesions. Is this something that you see a ton of or a ton noted in imaging? I see it noted in imaging a lot. Yeah. But do. it doesn't really drive any of your decision making. It doesn't making. necessarily change my clinical practice in sure. most cases. Um, and then they talk about loose bodies. So the presence of loose bodies, which would be small fragments of bone or cartilage within the joint, has been implicated as a disruptor of joint function in individuals presenting with hip pain. So numerous underlying mechanisms have been described. Single fragments typically occur in the case of dislocation or osteochondritis desiccans. Multiple fragments are more common in conditions such as synovial chondromatosis. So that's really all they say in here about loose bodies. It's not discussed a lot. Um, but, you know, just know that that's something that can happen in that joint as well. One so, thing I will say real quick about those two, though, is if you're having a patient after imaging, those two diagnoses, I think, sometimes sound really scary because they're going to be documented exactly like that. Mm -hmm. and so you're probably going to have to incorporate more um, patient education in there. You know, a sure. tendonitis doesn't seem as scary to them. You know, if they have an MRI and it's hip flexor tendonitis or an impingement, they seem to do better with that. These, because they relate to like bone, seem to kind of sound the alarms. Right. Sure. Yep. Okay. So then they talk a little bit about risk factors. So with the exception of traumatic injury, the specific cause of these non-arthritic hip disorders is really not clearly understood. Uh, potential risk factors have been proposed, but there's minimal evidence to substantiate the relationship of potential risk factors to non-arthritic hip joint disorders. Um, so there's the FAI and structural instability and how those are related, um, you know, which we discussed above and, and, you know, how they can be risk factors for other things going on in the hip joint. Um, so intraarticular injuries, so your labral tears, ruptured ligamentum teres, loose bodies, and chondral lesions. Um, osseous abnormalities may contribute to the intraarticular hip disorders, which makes sense. Um, and then they talk a little bit, so they talk about activity and participation. So activities such as distance running, ballet, golf, ice hockey, and soccer have been implicated in acetabular labral tears. Some authors have proposed that a specific direction of hip motion related to the suspected activities may be responsible for the increased risk. These directions include rotational stresses, hyperextension, and hyperflexion, which for me, I mean, I feel like that makes sense, um, especially when you're talking about like ballet, ice hockey, like you're definitely getting into these kind of end ranges of motion a lot. Um, and so if, if you don't have that, strength and control in those end range of motion, you know, that can definitely lead to hip issues. So um, those are the specific activities that they know. And then it also says clinicians should consider the presence of osseous abnormalities, local or global ligamentous laxity, connective tissue disorders, and the nature of the patient's activity and participation as risk factors for hip joint pathology. So their point there in that last sentence is really, we don't know you know, we can't pinpoint like this exact thing puts you at X percentage of, of risk because the research just isn't there. So really they're just saying all these things seem to kind of potentially lead to these hip issues. So, you know, consider if someone, if they have more than one of these things, they're probably at a higher risk. So that's really what I got out of that. Anything to add to that, Amanda? No, I don't have anything. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit next about, they actually go over diagnosis and classification. So um, they talk about the different things that you're probably going to see with these diagnoses. So 
Femoroacetabular impingement and the associated ICF diagnosis of joint pain and mobility impairments can be suspected with the following findings. Um, so this is basically what we might see with FAI. Pain in the anterior hip groin or lateral hip trochanteric region is reported. Pain is described as aching or sharp. It's aggravated by sitting. The pain is reproduced with the fader test, so the um, flexion, adduction, internal rotation test. Hip internal rotation is less than 20 degrees with the hip at 90 degrees of flexion. Hip flexion and abduction range of motion is also limited. Mechanical symptoms such as popping, locking, or snapping of the hip are present. Um, conflicting clinical findings are not present. And some of the radiographic findings they'll see are the cam impingement or pincer impingement, uh, decreased acetabular inclination, and acetabular retroversion. So that is the general um, classification for the femoral acetabular impingement. The next is structural instability and the associated ICF diagnosis of joint pain and stability impairments. Um, so that can be suspected with anterior groin, lateral hip, or generalized hip joint pain. Pain is reproduced with the fader test or the Faber test, positive hip apprehension sign, hip internal rotation greater than 30 degrees when the hip is at 90 degrees of flexion, Mechanical symptoms such as popping, locking, or snapping of the hip are present. Conflicting clinical findings are not present. And what you'll see on the radiographic findings for this is increased acetabular inclination, a tonus angle greater than 10 degrees, and decreased femoral head coverage. And the last one they talk about, um, they sort of group everything else together. So intraarticular injuries. So your labral tears, osteochondral lesion, loose bodies and ligamentum teres rupture, and the associated ICF diagnosis of joint pain can be um, suspected when the patient presents with anterior groin pain or generalized hip joint pain. The pain is reproduced with the Fader test or the Faber test. Mechanical symptoms such as popping, locking, or snapping of the hip are present. They may report feelings of instability and the sensation of instability when squatting. Um, conflicting clinical findings are not present and they'll likely see a labral tear on the imaging. It's the only thing they really note there. So, you know, again, I think this is where these diagnoses are challenging clinically to decipher because there is a lot of um, overlap between the symptoms that you're gonna see um, and why it's so important to have kind of combine your clinical findings with the radiographic findings to really decide what's possibly going on with these patients. Do you have anything to add to those no, or things I, yeah, that you I generally that's see? The, that's the tricky part about these is mm -hmm. putting them in the right grouping, I guess. But yeah. I think you'll see when we go into treatment you know, if you can figure it out right away, great. Would I spend a ton of time trying to make sure they have one category or another? Probably not in these patients because so much of it is so similar. Yeah, for sure. Your management of these people is going to be pretty straightforward um, and pretty similar between diagnoses. So it's, it's not like it's a huge deal. Um, but again, just like we said, it's, it's just a little challenging sometimes to differentiate. So, um, okay. So then they they are not really detailed about differential diagnosis in this CPG. They basically just list them. So I'm going to go through them real quick um, and kind of list them off for you guys. But what they're looking at are just potential other, you know, differential diagnoses. Um, so what they list is referred pain from lumbar facet disorders, referred pain from lumbar disc disorders, SI joint dysfunction, pubic symphysis dysfunction, lumbar spinal stenosis, nerve entrapment of the lateral femoral cutaneous or obturator nerves, hip osteoarthritis, iliopsoas tendonitis or bursitis, adductor strain, obturator internus strain, inguinal hernia, um, sports hernia, osteonecrosis of femoral head, stress fracture of the proximal femur or the pelvis, avulsion injuries of the sartorius or rectus femoris tendons, myositis ossificans, heterotopic ossificans of the hip joint, any gynecological disorders, neoplasm, leg calf perthes disease, slipped capital femoral epiphysis, 
osteomyelitis, psoas abscess, septic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, prostatitis, or metabolic bone disease. So they don't go into a ton of like, like I said, there's really not a ton of detail. They kind of just list these off as like, hey, these could be other things that could be causing similar symptoms in the hip. So just make sure that you're screening. And if they've had imaging, you know, they've probably been screened for a lot of these things that they're talking about. So um, the next thing they talk about are imaging studies. So as I mentioned before, imaging should really be used in conjunction with clinical findings to rule out any serious diagnoses such as cancer, osteonecrosis, or fracture. Um, plain radiographs are the first imaging study in the differential diagnosis procedure. So those are useful in detecting femoral and acetabular abnormalities that are associated with non-arthritic hip joint pain. Uh, Non-contrast MRI provides better detail for assessing soft tissue integrity. However, it's not been used extensively to assess intraarticular structures. Um, so the MRA is commonly used to detect changes of the intraarticular structures. They also talk about CT scans and delayed um, gadolinium-enhanced MRI of the cartilage, which has recently been implemented to assess cartil articular cartilage integrity and assist with pre-surgical planning. Um, and so they also go into some more specific details about like the types of images and the views that they would want for each thing um, in the CPG. I'm not going to go over that, but that is something that they note in there that I would probably read through is just what specific positions you might see, what types of abnormalities in that they'll do, um, you know, x-ray positions or MRI positions. So anything else that you generally see with imaging I mean, I think in general, it's going to say, like, imaging reports, I say, like, it either diagnoses it as a, like, in terms of an x-ray, it'll diagnose it as degenerative changes or not. And if it's an MRI, it'll reference, like, the labrum mm -hmm. when any kind of muscular abnormality. But after that, I can't say I see a consistently documented about, like, the angles and, you know what I mean? I don't yeah. see that. I don't know. And I don't think it's super important, but they do talk about it. So. Agreed. Okay. So then under clinical course, they basically just note that clinical course has not been described for non-arthritic hip joint disorders. And there's a lot more research that's needed. Um, but as we mentioned before, there could be some connection between these disorders and the development of OA later. So um, clinical management of these patients is highly variable they do say that a period of non-surgical management of at least eight to 12 weeks is recommended prior to consideration of surgical intervention. And that non-surgical management should include physical therapy, medication, and injections. If the symptoms don't improve, then surgery should be considered. Um, so recent advances in imaging and surgical techniques have led to an increase in surgical management for non-arthritic hip disorders. Although evidence related to favor favorable surgical outcomes is growing, the literature is limited primarily to observational studies with small sample sizes and short-term outcomes. The presence of pathology on imaging in individuals with non-arthritic hip pain needs careful patient selection if surgery is contemplated to optimize the potential for a favorable outcome. Um, so anti, go ahead, what were you gonna say? I was gonna say, I think that's really key when you're talking about surgery in these folks. If you're seeing them pre-op and you're, you know, at that eight to 12 week mark and between their visit with the surgeon and it kind of seems like it's headed towards surgery, I would do everything you can to prep them for the post-op phase. At yeah. least in the surgeons that I work consistently with, mm -hmm. it, it's a long, long recovery and it's a lot of restrictions, mm -hmm. especially for the first six to eight weeks. I mean, labral repairs and debridements and stuff, they are not quick. No, um, you know, like at least the surgeons I work with, they're in a brace for four weeks. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's not. And if you think about the population you're seeing this in, the thing I run into a lot is it's generally that middle age population. They're working full time. They have younger kids. You know what I mean? They need to really yeah. understand what's coming down the pipe if they're headed that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the next thing they talk about for clinical management is anti-inflammatory agents. They're often recommended, but evidence to support this intervention uh, with, for patients with non-arthritic hip pain is lacking. Uh, the next thing they talk about is the common surgical options. Again, I don't think 
in my opinion, it's super important to understand like the details of each of these. I'm going to list them off real quick. Um, they do talk in detail about it a little bit, but um, you know, really we're not doing these. And, and Amanda and I talked about this before too. It really depends on where you are and who the surgeon is. They all kind of have their specific ways of doing these things. So, um, and their specific procedures that they prefer. So um, clinically, I don't think like, I think understanding the, if you get frequent referrals from a surgeon, understanding what their approach is, is the most important thing. So the, the common options they talk about are labral tear resection or repair, capsular modification, osteoplasty to address femoroacetabular impingement, ligamentum teres debridement, loose body removal, periacetabular osteotomy to address acetabular dysplasia, um, and it says that labral tear resection has the most supporting evidence of all the arthroscopic procedures available. So right. I think the I, other important thing to know there too, is a lot of times in the surgeries I see for this, it's a combination. They don't go in and do like a labral resection or repair and mm -hmm. not fix the, you know, the impingement, the camera, the pincer impingement. Right. They're going to do both. Yeah. So yeah. Don't worry so much about it. Yeah. I would agree with that statement. So Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about are the, um, in your examination, so the outcome measures. Um, there's a few of them that they talk about in here, so I'm going to try and get through them quickly because I know these are a little bit boring, but we've talked about this in the past. I do think it's important to know these, um, particularly for your test and just understanding what the, you know, minimally uh, clinically important difference is and that sort of thing. So um, the first one they talk about is the HIP outcome score. So this is a self-reported measurement tool consisting of two separate subscales for ADLs, which is 17 items, and sports, which is nine items. So this test was developed specifically to assess the ability of young individuals with acetabular labral tears. Um, the MDC is an increase or decrease of three points, and the MCID is nine points on the ADL subscale and six points on the sports subscale. Uh, the Copenhagen hip and groin outcome score is the next one that they talk about. So this was developed to assess a patient's hip and groin disability um, in young and active patients. So it's a disease-specific self-reported questionnaire with the following six separately scored subscales. So it's pain, other symptoms, physical function in daily living, function in sport and recreation, and participation in physical activities, and hip-related quality of life. So each item is scored from zero to four. The smallest detectable change for the subscales ranges from 2.7 to 5.2, indicating that changes greater than 5.2 in any scale would be detectable. Construct validity and responsiveness were confirmed with st statistically significant correlation coefficients from 0.37 to 0.73 for convergent construct validity and for responsiveness from 0.56 to 0.69. So, a lot of numbers on that one. Go back and read it. Uh, but basically understand that when we're looking at, um, you know, these first couple scales that I'm talking about, these are really for like those younger, more active patients. So that's the Copenhagen hip and groin outcome score. The next is the international hip outcome tool, or they um, shorten this to the IHOT 33. So this was developed for young active adults with symptomatic hip disease. Questions are related to the following domains, symptoms and functional limitations, sports and recreational physical activities, job-related concerns, and social, emotional, and lifestyle concerns. Each item is scored using a 100-point um, visual BAS. MCID after hip arthroscopy is six points. And this one has moderate to good test retest reliability. I've never used this one. Have you? No. Okay. I'm just not I, really. I just haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I just haven't either. So um, the next is the modified Harris hip score. So this is a disease specific self-report questionnaire with questions related to pain and functional ability. It's scored from zero to a hundred higher scores indicate better function. Approximately 48% of the score is based on the patient's description of pain. And the remaining 52% is based on the ability to complete basic activities including walking stairs and donning and doffing shoes and socks. It does not capture the ability to perform higher level tasks such as heavy work or exercise activities. 
and there are no studies reported on the reliability or validity of the modified Harris HIP score. So I'm, I've also never used that one. Um, and it's interesting that there's no studies on the reliability or validity of it. So the next one is one that I've primarily used in the past, which is the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, or commonly known as the WOMAC. Uh, do you use this one, Amanda? I do. Yeah, Sometimes, this is yeah. the one that I see a lot. So uh, self-reported functional outcome questionnaire, the total score from zero to 96 uh, with three scale scores representing pain, which is zero to 20, stiffness zero to eight and physical function zero to 68 are generated. Uh, lower scores represent better health or function. Scores for the scales and total score may be normalized as a percentage. And the WOMAC was developed for patients after a total joint replacement and has limited validity for the use in individuals with non-arthritic hip joint disease. So I've primarily in the past used the WOMAC for exactly that. Um, I used to see a lot of hip replacements at my old job. And so that's when we would use this. I think it's really interesting they even included this in the CPG I was because- say, it's interesting I, to me it's in this yeah, one. Don't, yeah, they're we'll saying don't use it with this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So- Anyway, it's there, they throw it out there, but it's really not one that you're going to use in this population. So put it um, on the back burner for the next CPG because it yeah. talks about it there. And yeah, it for sure. Relevant. And it's relevant. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the last one is the hip disability. And again, this is arthritis, hip disability and osteoarthritis outcome score. So it's a disease specific self-report questionnaire that could be used for individuals with various types of hip pain. The Hoos includes all the questions from the WOMAC, along with additional items thought to be useful in detecting limitations in higher level activities, such as running, squatting, and pivoting. So there's 40 items that assess five domains, symptoms, which include stiffness and range of motion, pain, function in daily living, function in sport and recreation, and hip-related quality of life. Um, each item is scored from zero to four. 100 indicates no symptoms. Uh, it's been shown to have high test retest reliability and adequate construct validity when used with older individuals. So and this is one that you're going to use more so like not directly after a hip joint replacement like you would the WOMAC because it does include those higher level activities. But your your folks that want to get back to doing, you know, more squatting, pivoting, running, more active older individuals, uh, this would probably be better to use with them than the WOMAC for, um, you know, determining if they're back to what they want to be able to do. So those are all of them they talk about. I think the big takeaway there, like I said, make sure you look through and kind of know the numbers on this, but your hip outcome score, Copenhagen hip and groin outcome score, and the international hip outcome tool, those are really for your younger, more active people and are probably the most appropriate to use in this um, population of non-arthritic hip joint pain. So anything to add to any of that? No, I, the CPG does a nice job describing those and going through mm -hmm. them. So if you're not familiar with those, familiarize yourself. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think knowing them and understanding them is, is important. So the next thing they talk about are physical impairment measures. Um, so my recommendation here is to understand, you know, what these tests are, how to perform them, and what you're rolling in or out with these tests. Um, they are very detailed in the CPGs, but I'm going to give just kind of some outlines uh, so a couple of them I'll be a little more detailed on, but a lot of it's just like what you should be measuring, range of motion, strength, that sort of thing, and, and we won't go, get too detailed there. So the first one they talk about is the Trundellenberg sign, and the purpose of this is to assess the ability of the hip abductors to stabilize the pelvis during single limb stance. Um, so obviously this is important in your folks that are running, uh, walking, anything where they're in a single leg stance. So from standing, the patient performs single leg stance by flexing the opposite hip to 30 degrees and holding for 30 seconds. Once they're balanced, the patient is asked to raise the non-stance pelvis as high as possible. The examiner observes the angle formed by a line that connects the iliac crest and a line vertical to the testing surface. The subject can use a light ipsilateral touch with the upper extremity or the examiner can provide gentle manual pressure to help them maintain balance. So we're not necessarily looking at their single leg balance here. We want them to be able to, to balance, but we're looking at how high they can, they can pull that hip up and hold for 30 seconds. So a negative test is the pelvis on the non-stance side 
can be elevated and maintained for 30 seconds. So that negative test is showing you they have good hip abductor stabilization. A positive test would be that the patient is unable to hold the elevated pelvis for 30 seconds, or if there's no elevation um, noted on the non-stance side, or if the stance hip adducts, allowing the pelvis on the non-stance side to drop downwardly below the surface of the stance side pelvis. Um, they do go into some detail about like exactly how to measure the, you know, 30 degrees and, and whatever, but um, I'm not going to get into that here. That's just the general of what you're looking at with that test. So anything to add to that one? No, I just, sometimes with that one too, I think that one can be indicative of quality of movement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll see them try to generate that movement with their hip flexors and lurch forward. So just really knowing what you're looking for with that test. Yeah. Again, yep. Not how high all the time, but how does it look? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So then the next one they talk about is the Faber. So the hip flexion abduction external rotation test. So the purpose is to, to determine the movement, pain relation, or irritability of hip movements and mobility at the hip joint. So in this um, test, the patient is going to lie supine with the heel of the lower extremity being tested, placed over the opposite knee. The hip joint is passively externally rotated and abducted while stabilizing the contralateral ASIS. A positive test here is production of or an increase in anterior groin, posterior buttock, or lateral hip pain. If there's no increase in pain, pressure may be placed over the ipsilateral knee to determine the limit or end range range of passive range of motion and again assess for pain provocation. So I know we talked about this previously um, when we talked about the low back CPG that this is something that you do quite a bit Amanda. Um, yeah. I like this test too. I mean I think it gives you good um, information not only about you know reproduction of symptoms but also range of motion. Right. So um, the next one they talk about is the fader so the hip flexion adduction internal rotation. Um, and the purpose of this one is to assess for painful impingement between the femoral neck and acetabulum in the anterior superior region, and also test for specific pathology of the acetabular labrum. Um, so you can read more details on that. I didn't make a ton of notes because it's pretty much just kind of the opposite of the opposite direction of the favor. Um, and it's not one, I don't do that one as often as I do the favor. I don't know about you. Um, I do it periodically but I do mm -hmm. it very passively and I'll be honest yeah the CPG talks about flexing them to 90 if they have a little more than 90 I go a little past 90 passively yeah. and sometimes I give a little bit of overpressure, almost like a scour test into that internal rotation motion mm -hmm. sometimes I find that just a true fader isn't isn't enough you know what I mean it may yeah. not elicit their symptoms Right. Um, so I kind of do like, I guess, a mix between like fader and a scour test kind of through that motion with a little overpressure passively and see what kind of response I get with that. Sure. Yep. The next one they talk about is the log roll test, uh, which I didn't know what the heck they were talking about when I first read that. But all they're looking at here, so it's a, a test to determine the ligamentous laxity. So the patient lies supine with their knees extended and the examiner internally and externally rotates their leg. And you just compare side to side. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, so a positive test is it's positive for ligamentous laxity when the involved hip demonstrates greater external rotation range of motion than the uninvolved hip. So you're really just comparing side to side with their passive range of motion as all this test is. Um, then they talk about looking at passive hip internal and external rotation range of motion. Um, so they talk about um, the amount of hip rotation range of motion is measured with the hip in 90 degrees of flexion, so in sitting, and then also in zero degrees of flexion and prone. And you also want to ask the patient to rate their pain when you're moving into these different ranges of motion. Um, they do note that limited hip internal rotation with the hip flex to 90 degrees has been associated with bony impingement due to acetabular impingement. Um, but basically, they're just talking about when you do this internal and external rotation range of motion, they encourage you to do it in sitting. So you're at 90 degrees of flexion, also in prone, so you're at zero degrees of flexion. Uh, the other tests that they talk about doing, which I'm not gonna go into detail, they do describe them, but I'm sure we all do most of these 
very frequently. Um, so passive hip flexion and ab hip abduction range of motion, hip abductor and posterior glute med strength, hip internal rotation muscle strength with the hip flexed and with the hip extended, hip external rotation muscle strength with the hip flexed and the hip extended, and then single joint hip flexor muscle strength. So they talked a little bit in detail about that, but um, anything you wanna add about those impairment yeah, measures? Yeah, I mean, they go into like using handheld dynamometers mm -hmm. for your muscle testing and all of that. And th that's research heavy. I think it's important to read over but I don't know that it's practical knowledge. I can't say I do that in the clinic. I do really consistently muscle test all of those in these patients. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, I mean, read their procedures, but outside of that, don't worry too much about them, I would say. Yeah, I agree. Okay, and so now we're going to get into the interventions. And with this, all of the interventions I'm going to talk about are graded as, and when the, the way they talk about in the CPG is graded as, uh, level F, which is expert opinion. So none of these have a ton of research backing them up. It's all just expert opinion of what we feel like we should be doing clinically um, when managing these patients. So the first thing that they talk about is patient education and counseling. Uh, so clinicians may utilize patient education and counseling for modifying aggravating factors and managing pain associated with non-arthritic hip joint pain. So preoperative PT for patients undergoing um, arthroscopic hip procedures, they mentioned that as being important. And Amanda, this is kind of what you talked about too, like just educating these people on what to expect. Um, with labral tears, they should be educated in regard to activities that could place the labrum at risk for further injury. Um, advice on activity modification is indicated for all individuals with non-arthritic hip disorders and should be individually tailored to meet functional demands and diagnostic subgroups um, unique to the individual. So um, basically activity modification um, is, is one of the big things. And I, I think we do, do that pretty much with everyone, but it's something that they note is important in this population. So with um, femoral acetabular impingement, they know that patients should avoid activities that place the hip joint in positions that create the, that impingement effect. So end range flexion, internal rotation, and abduction commonly cause that impingement. So you'll want to kind of gauge that with your patient, which movements are aggravating and, you know, just educate them. Moving into that isn't going to help. You want to try and avoid those positions. Uh, structural instability, they should limit activities that place repetitive strain on the passive restraints of the hip. So again, you know, your people that are super flexible, maybe they've got Ehlers-Danlos or something like that. We don't want to repetitively strain those, you know, end ranges of motion and, and keep pushing into that. Um, so basically the overview of this is avoid activities that increase symptoms. That, that's pretty much what they're saying. So the next portion they talk about is manual therapy. Um, in the absence of contraindications, joint mobilization procedures may be indicated when capsular restrictions are suspected to impair hip mobility, and soft tissue mobilization procedures may be indicated when muscles and their related fascia are suspected to impair hip mobility. Um, so with femoral acetabular impingement, they note that end-range physiologic techniques such as flexion and internal rotation should be avoided if the patient has cam or pincer impingement. And for structural instability, joint mobilization is contraindicated in hypermobile patients, except for, for pain modulation. So obviously those really light grade one, maybe grade two are okay, but they don't want you really mobilizing those people that are already hypermobile. Um, for therapeutic exercise and activities, Clinicians may utilize therapeutic exercises and activities to address joint mobility, muscle flexibility, muscle strength, muscle power deficits, reconditioning, and metabolic disorders. So they talk about stretching. So with these people, you want to determine um, if they have any re anything related to or any like limitations in their flexibility related to bony abnormalities or true joint or soft tissue restriction. Um, so if there's structural instability, you definitely don't want to be stretching these patients. Um, strengthening should address asymmetries in hip strength, particularly hip rotators and abductors in those with structural instability. Muscle flexibility, they talk about um, addressing with soft tissue mobilization, contract, relax, stretching, and prolonged stretching that doesn't increase the patient's symptoms. Um, you want to avoid this in osseous conditions associated with end range of motion limitations. 
Uh, and then they talk about cardiorespiratory endurance. So individuals with non-arthritic hip joint pain may be reconditioned um, or maybe deconditioned, sorry, secondary to decreased activity levels due to pain. Uh, cardiorespiratory aerobic conditioning is necessary to promote optimal health and prevent or remediate metabolic disorders such as obesity and diabetes. And the last thing they know is neuro-re-ed. So clinicians may utilize neuromuscular re-education procedures to diminish movement coordination impairments identified in patients with non-arthritic hip joint pain. So again, all of those different interventions were rated as expert opinion. There is not a ton of research out there on any of these. Um, I think for me, when it comes to treating patients with hip pain, I do a lot of just hey, we're going to just try this. We're going to try that. We're going to see what makes you feel better. Um, we're going to avoid those things, especially those people with impingement. I mean, it sucks to move into that range of motion. It hurts. So just educating them. Don't push into it. It's, it's not going to get better um, if you continue to push into that range of motion. So that's my general approach, um, especially because there isn't a lot of research to back up very specific uh, interventions. So... What are your thoughts on that? Anything else? Yeah, I agree with that. The one thing I will say with the flexibility and the stretching, and we mentioned this in another podcast, like stretching the heck out of people's hip flexors in these cases is usually not the answer. You know, I'd really caution mm -hmm. you against overstretching these people. Even Yes, definitely not in the people that are already lax. Don't overstretch them. Even the people that maybe are a little bit tight, if they are truly having like an impingement syndrome and it's starting to now affect their iliopsoas tendon and maybe they're getting some tendinopathy and they're getting just a lot of irritation in the anterior hip hip flexor stretching is not going to feel great um so i would encourage you i think just in my experience going more for the gentle even if it, you start with isometric strengthening of the posterior lateral hip that that tends to be a little bit more toler well tolerated than aggressive stretching sometimes i see a therapist like go into these aggressive like leg drop hip flexor stretches and then the patient tries to lift their leg back up on the mat or the bed and they're miserable so i would just we mentioned that in another cpg with the low back just be careful like the aggressive stretching it's probably not gonna get you the result you're looking for and the patient's probably not gonna feel great with these ones yeah and i think that like i don't know why this is but i feel like a lot of people default to stretching when they're having pain especially in the hip and so they've probably already tried it. So again, like have those conversations with people, like, have you tried anything for your hip? What have you been doing? And if they're like, well, I've been stretching. Okay, well, show me exactly what you've been doing. And how does that make you feel while you're doing it? And how do you feel afterwards? Um, I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I always seem to find that people have already tried doing some sort of stretching. So making I sure you're, yeah, yeah, you're educating them on, you know, what what stretches might be appropriate and how they should feel while they're doing it and after they're doing it and if you're having x y or z symptoms then i want you to stop so yeah i think it's partially because it's something typically stretches are if people google something or look something up on the internet and it comes up with stretching exercises or strengthening exercises stretching exercises to a lot of people seem less threatening mm -hmm. and so i think that's where a lot of people start yeah. whatever they look up online and then they're confused when that doesn't work because it's the seemingly less threatening exercise. They just don't understand what's happening to the tissue when they do that. Right. Exactly. Yep. I agree. So, so that is the gist of the non-arthritic hip joint pain CPG. Um, sorry, this, I, I kind of was afraid this one might end up being a little bit long because there's a lot of information in it, but again, it's, it's not a lot of like really, solid research behind a lot of these things. So definitely know this stuff, um, read through them, understand them. But I think that there's also a lot of other non-arthritic hip joint um, diagnoses that are gone over in some other resources that are also important to know. So just don't rely on this to be your only source of information outside of um, hip arthritis in your preparation. Agreed. So so again, if you guys have questions, uh, like I mentioned, and I'll put it in the show notes as well at the, um, you know, email us, or you can also contact either of us on Facebook, or like I said, I'm, a, I'm primarily on Instagram. So that's a great place to find me too. Um, 
and you know we'd love more feedback or questions or anything you guys have up next right. will be the arthritic hip yes so we'll put that one out um hopefully the following week and you guys will be able to kind of listen through that and i think it's a little less heavy than some of this right agreed yes okay <laughs> all right okay well thank you very much